No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was just a few weeks ago that I was getting ready to leave on the St. Luke's Holy Land trip. Now, this was my fourth trip to the Holy Land, but each time it's been a unique experience and life-changing for me. Now, one of the differences about this trip was that there were about five different ways that people were getting over to that side of the world. Now, first of all, we uh, were doing things a little bit different in the itinerary. In addition to the Holy Land, we also went to Jordan, and we saw the ancient city of Petra. And then there was the option of an extension trip to Egypt. Well, three people were meeting us there in Egypt just for the extension trip, and so they would meet us about halfway in through our travels. We had two people who were joining us by way of Florida, Then we had a group that left a day early on May 29th, and then finally on May 30th, we had two groups flying out of Oklahoma City. One group was flying on Lufthansa Airlines, and they were getting to Tel Aviv by way of Houston and then Frankfurt, Germany. And then the other group was flying on British Airways, and we were flying to Chicago, London, and then to Tel Aviv. Now, what was impressive to me, with the exception of the people that were just going to Egypt, All the rest of the group was going to arrive in Tel Aviv within 45 minutes of one another. That was the plan. So on May 30th, the first group uh, left Oklahoma City and they headed out to Houston. And our group remained and our flight to Chicago was delayed. Finally, they allowed us to board the plane and they told us that the delay would increase. We would eventually be delayed an hour and a half before we got to Chicago. But they reassured us that the flights were being delayed because of bad weather in Chicago and that all the flights there were being delayed, arrivals and departures. And so that meant we didn't have to worry about any of our connections. They would be safe because everything was delayed. And that's what they told us on the plane in Oklahoma City. When we arrived in Chicago, we found out that our departure time hadn't changed. It was still the same amount of time. And so our very comfortable layover became very tight. But we were confident that we could still make our uh, connecting flight. And so as we got off the plane, we started to gather there and wait for one another And I was waiting till the last people of our group were getting off the plane. 
But I shared with some of them, if they wanted to go on, they could check the departure board and verify the time, but then head out to Terminal 5. Terminal 5 is the international terminal in Chicago, and it's a different part of the airport. You can only get there by way of the transit train or the shuttle bus. And so initially, a group of three people, uh, they decided they were going to start heading that way, and so they made their way to Terminal 5. Well, when the last of our group came off the plane, there was another group of five people. They decided they were going to go on and, and make their way to the terminal, and there just were three people left. It was me and my children, Hannah and Brooks. Now, my husband Chris wasn't able to make this trip, so it was just me, Hannah, and Brooks, and I was a little worried about having enough cash, so I decided I needed one more chance to hit the ATM machine. So we made that stop, and then we too were headed out to Terminal 5. Now, the airport had lots of signage, but they seemed to point you in many different directions. And that was because there were many ways to get to Terminal 5, but they didn't specify if, they were sending, if the signs were sending you to the transit train or the shuttle bus. And specifically that day, they didn't tell you that the transit train was not operational. It was broken down. So I remember coming around the corner, and the signs were pointing us to the, the last gate as a way to get to Terminal 5. And as we came around the corner, I could see that second group of five people at the very last gate. And I could see that they were talking to an airport employee who obviously was turning them back around and pointing them back to our direction. And so we turned around and we stopped an airport employee and asked uh, where to go. And we asked two other people and we got three different ideas. Finally, we made our way to the shuttle buses, but this time I'm really starting to get nervous and worried. And so I'm in contact with people in the second group and I decide it's time to call the airline. So I am calling British Airways while we're getting on the shuttle bus and while I'm texting members of the second group. And the people of British Airways were so delightful. I got to speak to people in several different departments. They were all very pleasant, but in the end, uh, no one was able to help me. And so I decided, you know, who do I call? I called the CEO of our travel company educational opportunities. And I didn't realize that he was traveling on the other side of the world. And so he had been asleep uh, to take my call. And it took him a while to wake up and hear uh, the growing tension in my voice. And finally, he understood and he said he would make the necessary calls. He asked me to text him the contact information of people who were in the group behind me. I knew that group of five I was very concerned that they were going to make it. And so I'm texting him their contact information. I'm texting the people in that group. And by this time, I'm contacting Dr. Bob Long to let him know the situation in Chicago. Finally, me and the kids, we make it to Terminal 5, and we go through the international security, and I see a British Airways agent there, and I start pleading with her. I, I tell her, there's already one group on your plane. I said, we have our group, and then there's one group behind me. Please hold the plane. And she said that she would do what she could, and she ushered us to the gate. 
we get to the gate and I'm all but on my knees begging them to hold the plane. I said, part of our group's there. You just have one small group behind me. Please wait. And again, they said they do what they could. And they got me on the plane and, and my kids and they, they showed us to our seats and we were promptly told we needed to buckle up and start putting our phones away. And then the full realization of everything started hitting me and all these questions and worries start hitting my stomach and my head and they tell us to turn off our phones, they're closing the doors. And I'm like, maybe they're up there. Maybe they got on and I just don't see them. And so all these questions, what if they didn't make the flight? What if British Airways doesn't take care of this and get them on to Israel? What if educational opportunities can't figure a different path out? What if they don't get to go on the trip at all? What if they don't get their money back? I start really worrying about all these things. And it hits me in that moment. I've done all I can do. I don't have the use of my phone anymore. I can't contact anybody. I have exhausted all of my resources. And now I've gone from worry that kind of heightened my senses and was helping me make calls and and get a hold of people to a worry that started to just kind of bring me down and, and destroy My children are sitting right beside me, and they're all worried about me. They see the the anguish, the anger, the fretting, and I realize in that moment I have a decision. And it was almost like I hear this, this voice, this question, what is your worrying accomplishing now? And I realized it wasn't. There was nothing more I could do. And I could sit there and worry and spin out of kind of control and just be consumed by it and make things miserable, or I could just give that up and trust that God would provide a way, that the people that I had contacted would make a way possible. And I had an intentional choice to make, to lay it aside. When we arrived in London, I found out that everything had been taken care of and flight arrangements had been made for the group to make it to Tel Aviv, and they would be there just a few hours after our arrival. I also discovered that in the large plane, uh, the first group had never arrived. And so the first and second groups had not made the flight, and only the leader of the group (laughs) had made the flight, leaving the rest of the group behind, and so had that to wrestle with. Who of us, by worrying, can add anything to our life? This morning, I want to continue on with our sermon series, Questions. What does Christ ask of us? Throughout the sermon series, we've been looking at some of the questions that Jesus asks in Scripture. There are a whole host of questions that Jesus raises. He would ask questions of his disciples, of the crowds that he spoke to, of officials, And what we're doing in this series is taking some of those questions and examining them on a Sunday morning and using them in a way that Jesus is asking us this question. And so I want to ask you again, who of us, by worrying, can add a single hour to their life? Now, Jesus asked this question during his Sermon on the Mount, 
He was teaching the people and preaching to them about a better way of life. Now, Jesus is not telling them to not have any concerns. And I don't think he's talking about the worry that kind of drives you forward. I do think there are those kind of different types of worry. There's the worry that spurs you into action. But I think Jesus is talking about the worry that starts to just focus on your own self, on your own concerns, and it holds you captive. Jesus came to set us free from things like worry and doubt and fear. And there are three things that we can discuss this morning that can help us to be free from worry and to embrace the, pre- the peace that Christ brings to us. First is that we focus on nature. Now, Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount at a place near the Sea of Galilee where the terrain creates a natural amphitheater. A person can talk there in a normal voice and be heard by a huge crowd. Now, when he's speaking, he is telling the people, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, but, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Later on in the chapter, Jesus would ask another question and, and encourage the people, look at the lilies of the field. In all of their splendor and beauty, Solomon in all of his riches, did not dress as beautifully as they, and your heavenly Father clothes them. Are you not more valuable than the flowers of the field? Now, what Jesus is doing here is giving this lesson and this this moral that of all of nature, God loves us most. God will take care of us as much as God provides for the birds of the air, and takes care of the flowers of the field, God will be there for us. That's how much God loves us. But even if we don't get to the lesson, even if we don't fully understand it or embrace it, the very first words of Christ give us what we need to make a difference in our lives. He says, look at the birds of the air. There's something that happens when we focus on nature. Have you ever been intentional about just sitting and looking at birds, listening to them? Have you been intentional about looking at the lilies or the flowers around you? This area where Jesus would preach the Sermon on the Mount is is by the Sea of Galilee, and we were able to visit this area. And we could sit there, and you could hear the waves of the lake. It's a large freshwater lake, and you could hear the waves of the lake kind of lapping up on the shoreline. And everywhere you looked, you could uh, look and see and hear the birds around you. Israel has a phenomenal diversity of bird species, and we could hear several different calls and songs of birds in that moment. If all we did was to look for the birds in the air. There's something that transcends that moment. You feel your worries kind of slipping away. If we're intentional about focusing on nature, it helps us to put things into perspective. If we look around at the creation that exists, that God made the diversity, the beauty, the incredible awe of nature— 
it helps us to realize the beauty and love that God has for us. So second, it's important that we do what we can. Jesus is not giving the crowd or us an excuse to be lazy. He's not saying, don't have any worries, don't worry about anything, just sit back, it's okay. No, we are called to be driven and passionate. We're called to make a difference in this world. We are called to love others and make a difference. And the only way we can do that is if we care, if we're concerned, if we, if we have worries. But only the kind that drive us into action, the only kind of worries that we should are the ones that matter, the everlasting ones. We shouldn't be concerned about the things of this world that are going to pass away. Jesus talks to us and helps us to focus on what's really meaningful. I'm surprised, even in my own life, about some of the silly things that I've been caught up by. There were several years ago that I met a person who had read a biography on every U.S. president, and I thought, that's what I want to do. That's my goal. And so I got a biography on the first president, George Washington, and read that, and it was really good. And then I got the uh, Dave McCullough book on John Adams. It's an exceptional biography of our second, second president, John Adams, and I started that book when I was in seminary. Now, it's a really, really good book, but it's really, really long. And in the midst of seminary, I finally, I gave it all I had, but I only got about two-thirds of the way through, and I had to set it aside. And then I was done. If I couldn't get beyond the second president, what, what was I supposed to do? Uh, several years later, I came across another David McCullough book, Mornings on Horseback. And maybe I started into it because it didn't say biography in that title, but it's a biography on Theodore Roosevelt, and I loved it. And all of a sudden, since I had break, uh, broke ranks, I was free. I wouldn't watch the miniseries that came out on John Adams. I wouldn't do anything because I was worried that I hadn't kept the order. But all of a sudden, finding another book by David McCullough, I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Why was I worried in the first place? Well, a few weeks ago, I came across a biography on James Garfield. He was the 20th president of the United States and just an incredible man. It's tragic that his life and presidency were cut short when he was assassinated just 200 days into his office. But I think he was able to make a mark and leave a legacy and I think so much of his upbringing had a role in that, especially his mother, Eliza. His mother, Eliza Ballou, married Abram Garfield in 1821. And she and her husband were deeply in love, and they were adventuresome. And they bought several acres in the woods in northern Ohio, just about where Cleveland is. And they started building a cabin and they were in the midst of a forest to help protect them from the harsh winter winds. And they established a farm, and things were wonderful. They had four children. James was the youngest. But then a fire happened in their forest. And Abram fought all day long and into the night. And he was able to kind of divert the fire away, and he saved their farm. He saved the cabin, and their entire family was safe but he became very, very ill. 
And just a couple days later, he passed away. And all of a sudden, all of the realities of Eliza's world came crashing in. The love of her life was gone. And now she was a single mom to four young children. The oldest was only about 11 years old, and James, the youngest, was 18 months old. And she lived in a cabin in the forest. Her her nearest neighbor was about seven miles away. She was alone. And she had a farm with a debt. She didn't know what she was going to do. But she was a woman of deep faith and conviction, and she was certain that God would lead her in the things that she could do, and she would work hard. One of the neighbors came by and offered her advice, you need to sell this farm. There's no way a single woman can run this farm. You need to sell it and try to start over. But she realized if she sold the farm, it would pay off the debt, but that was it. She wouldn't have any money left over, and she wouldn't have a a home to live in, and no farm to help provide for her children. So in the midst of her prayers, she came up with the idea to sell a few acres of her land and generate some money. They didn't have any money at the time. And she started uh, looking, not focusing on the things that were beyond her control, but she started looking and focusing on what she could do. She assessed how much food they had in their cold storage, and she realized that between now and the harvest, they didn't have enough. And so she started sacrificing, eating only one meager meal a day to be able to make it to harvest time, and they made it. And after that harvest, her kids would never, ever have to go without food again. They made that farm work. They were successful. But her concerns for her family went beyond the farm. She was concerned about her children's education. There was a schoolhouse two miles away, which the children were able to go to most of the year. But during the winters in northern Ohio, the snow was too deep. And so the younger children couldn't make it for a part of the year. And so she had the idea to bring the schoolhouse to her family. She gathered some of her nearer neighbors And she pitched them on the idea of, if the men will build a schoolhouse, I'll donate the land to build it upon. And so they built a schoolhouse. All of her children, as well as 15 to 20 of her neighbor's children, were able to go to school year-round because of her determination. Later on, as James grew up, he was a very intelligent, adventuresome young youth. And the family was poor. Uh, They didn't go without, but they didn't have much. They didn't have very many books. And James ended up memorizing most of the books that they had, including one on pirates. And he decided that he was going to be a sailor on the ocean, on a big ship, and his mother was very worried about him, probably because he couldn't swim. But he was determined, no matter how much she tried to talk him out of it, he got as far as Lake Erie on a uh, a boat there, but he kept falling off numerous times, almost drowning each and every time. And finally, he became so sick with malaria that they sent him home to recover. And his mother, who had very real concerns and worries, knew that she had this opportunity 
to make a difference, to change the course of his life. And so she gathered together her entire life savings, $17, and she gave it to her son James to go to college. It would cover one semester, but that's all that was needed because once he got there, he fell in love with learning. And he was so good that by his second semester, they gave him odd jobs, and within a couple years, they let him pay his way through school by making him a professor. He would come back and be a president of the school. He would go on from there and serve in the Civil War, and he would have a successful political career. He was an unlikely candidate in the Republican National Convention and was then elected to the presidency. And at his inaugural events was his 79-year-old mother, Eliza. She couldn't do everything, and some of the fears and worries in her life were real, and she couldn't change them. But she worked hard to do what she could, and she made a difference. And third, we are called to trust the rest to God. I love this serenity prayer. Most of us are familiar with the initial portion. It's written by Reinhold Niebuhr, but I want to read the prayer in its entirety. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as the pathway to peace, taking, as he did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever and ever in the next. Amen. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Many of us will face real fears and hardships in life, and there will be things that we cannot change. But we can pray to God to have courage to change the things that we can, and we can embrace the peace that Christ brings to our lives and help us to have the wisdom to know the difference between the two. Bill and Kathy Warner are a couple from Guthrie, Oklahoma. Now, they're very active, committed members of the Christian church there, but Kathy also started watching St. Luke's online, and she started uh, receiving our devotionals and reading those daily. She started getting our uh, daily mail list, and it was there that she found out about our trip to the Holy Land. Now, she was determined that they were going to go. She and her husband, Bill, she just knew had to be on this trip. And they would encourage their dear friends to attend the trip with them as well. But first, she had to get permission from her doctor because Kathy had a cancer diagnosis. Now, it started out many years ago, 16 years ago, she was first diagnosed with cancer and they did everything to fight it. She fought against it, taking all the treatments and all the procedures. And she was able to beat cancer at that time. And she was cancer-free for many years. 
She would go to her annual checkup and they would uh, do her blood work and give her a clean bill of health every single year. But about three years ago, she wasn't feeling well. And she knew that she needed more than just the regular test and checkup that she was getting. And so they did a full scan and they found that her original cancer had metastasized to her lungs and throughout her body. And the prognosis wasn't good. Now, it would have been so easy for her to become angry and bitter and held back by that. It would have been easy for her to become full of worry and fear and not want to do anything. But she wasn't going to be held back by the things that she couldn't change. And so after getting permission from her doctor and letting her husband know that they'd be on the trip and encouraging her friends to go on the trip, they started meeting with our group from St. Luke's and they became a part of our family of faith. They were wonderful. We were so excited to have them on the trip. Um, One of the things that she was very excited about was getting to go to Petra. But early on in the trip, Kathy became very ill and had to go to the hospital in Israel. Now, initially, it looked like their trip would be over before it even started. But then she started to respond to the medicine they gave her. And so she came back to the hotel and she asked if I would meet with her. And she asked if she could stay on the trip. She said that she didn't want her health to be a burden on anybody, and she didn't want it to cast a pall on the group. But would I let her stay if she could? And I assured her, of course you can. This group was so glad to have her back and her husband that we just embraced them, and we were impressed by her commitment and her resiliency, and her health never defined her. Uh, She made it all the way to the end of the trip and to Petra. She was so excited. That was the highlight of their trip. Now, Petra is a very hard journey. You have to go through these mountain passageways, and they had to take this carriage ride that was rough and harsh across the rocky surface, but they made it. And When they returned home, I know that she was proud of what she had achieved. But when she returned home, her health rapidly changed. She went to the hospital, and they sent her home with hospice care. Earlier, at the beginning of last week, she became non-responsive. And just yesterday morning, her husband, Bill, called me and let let me know that Kathy had passed away. I am absolutely convinced that she was determined to go on the trip, that she was proud of what she had achieved. And when she came home, she felt that that part of her life was complete. She never let the worries and fears of her life hold her back from living as much as she possibly could. And I can tell you that her health did not define her. All of us in the group were brought closer to God by seeing her joy and kindness, by seeing her husband Bill's love for her. It was a better trip because they were there. They made a difference for us, and it was because she would not be held back by her worries and doubts. She did what she could. She lived life to the fullest because her spirit was free. 
Who of us can add a single hour to our lives through worry? Set your spirit free. Pray to God. Ask God for the peace to handle the things that you cannot change. Ask God for the courage to change the things that you can. And ask God for the wisdom to know the difference. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen.